Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we all know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Thank you so much, Lee Ching. And please do uh, keep your Bibles open at that passage. We'll, as we start this morning, I'll take you around to a few different parts of the Bible, but uh, those verses should appear on the screen. Uh, but we will come back uh, to 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. So just, just leave it open there. And let me, uh, let me pray as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your uh, word to us. We thank you for your promises and for the future that uh, you have promised uh, for those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus. And Father, we ask that as we reflect on this, your word today, we'll have our hearts excited uh, by what you have planned for us the glorious future. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oswald Sanders was a prolific author. Uh, he was a missionary and a, a speaker as well. I'll show you a picture of him on the screen right now. Uh, Oswald came and preached here in this building in 1991 uh, to our 7pm gathering. He was 89 years old at the time. I think he's the oldest person who's ever preached here, as far as I know. And I was the evening, you know, the 7 p.m. service pastor at the time. And when I heard that this 89-year-old man was coming to preach, I was worried. And I thought, I wonder how this is going to go, you know. And then when he arrived, I was more worried. Uh, because when he, he looked so dottery, really. We met out in the room out the back. And I was, he had a very quiet voice. And yeah, I just thought, this is going to be terrible, you know. And then as he came out, uh, he, there were more steps here uh, back in those days. And as he started going up the steps, I thought, he's going to fall over backwards, you know, like it really was one of those moments. Uh, I was quite worried. Anyway, he got into the pulpit and he came alive. 
It was quite extraordinary. Uh, he explained he had three points. He preached incredibly powerfully. It was a wonderful, wonderful sermon. Although I did notice uh, when we got to the end of the service, as far as I could tell, he'd only uh, preached on two points. And uh, so I asked him afterwards, I said, what? I, it seemed to me you only uh, preached on two points, not three. And he said, he said, oh, Paul, he said, when you get to my age, sometimes you forget points. <laughs> And that's exactly what had happened. Anyway, shortly afterwards, uh, after he left, I heard that he had cancer. And he decided that he would write one last book before he died. In fact, a book that was published after his death. And here's the cover. Uh, you'll see it on the screen. Heaven, better by far. Now, he was 90, uh, dying of cancer. Uh, so I think... Smart for him to spend a bit of time thinking about heaven, you would have thought. And of course, if you're old and in bad shape, it is good to have something to look forward to. But if you're a follower of Jesus here today, and I take it uh, that many of us are, and I ask you, are you looking forward to heaven? Well, you know the right answer is to say, oh, yeah, you know, I can't be wait. But Really? Are you really looking forward to heaven? And is it right to look forward to heaven? Because there's a sense in which you're saying, I want to die. Is that an appropriate thing for a Christian to say? And what will be good about heaven? I mean, the popular images of, uh, of film and literature, they don't make it seem all that exciting, really. When you think about heaven, you know, people floating around looking bored or like they're on drugs. You know, like a lot of those heavenly pictures look like people are spaced out and it's full of clouds and harps and halos and bright lights. You know, a ghostly sort of experience. Heaven's a place where no one has any style whatsoever, right? Everyone wanders around in, you know, poncho white poncho type things all looking the same you know that's just just very in fact heaven seems sort of vanilla and colorless and bland like earth with all the fun stuff just sucked out so what does the bible tell us about heaven what does it tell us heaven will be like and what will make heaven good why is it something to look forward to? All right, well, let's get into it. Uh, we know from last week that uh, in heaven, in the presence of God, we won't be disembodied spirits, but when the Lord Jesus returns, we'll receive new resurrection bodies that are designed for our eternal existence. But of course, then there's the question, you know, where will these bodies exist and what will those bodies, our bodies, be doing? You know, what, what will be the shape of that? And can I say that when you turn to the New Testament, these questions are not completely answered for us. I want to take you back, and you'll see it on the screen, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, where the Apostle Paul is quoting uh, from the prophet Isaiah. He says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. In fact, it's the same idea as back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, uh, that we had read just a moment ago. So we fix our eyes 
not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Isn't that a great definition of a Christian? Don't you think? Fixing our eyes on the unseen promises of God. The Bible tells us a lot about what it will be like to dwell with God for all eternity. But it is describing something none of us have experienced and none of us have actually seen. It'd be like, uh, say you went on a safari to South America and you're out with a group exploring a very, uh, uh, you know, untapped sort of part of the country and you came into a valley previously undiscovered and a tribe that had sat there uh, locked off from the rest of civilization for centuries and centuries. Uh, Stone Age sort of existence. How would you explain to them what a car was or a skyscraper or a jet plane? I mean, how would you communicate to them what a, a computer was, given that sort of background? And so the Bible gives us lots of images and symbols and uses apocalyptic language to fill out the picture, picture of heaven for us, just so that we can get a sense from what we know to what we don't know of what that will be like. Things we're familiar with to what we're less familiar with. Now, what I'm going to do is just list some of these images for you so you get a bit of a snapshot. This is not comprehensive, but just gives you a few different pictures. Uh, it's described as being a wedding where God's people are the bride of Christ. That's Revelation 21. As being paradise, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A place where you receive your inheritance, Galatians chapter 3. Uh, your treasure is stored in heaven, Matthew chapter 6. It'll be a place where you receive rewards, 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it talks about the fact that we will judge the angels. Isn't that an interesting idea? We'll rule with Jesus, Revelation chapter 5. In John 14, it's pictured as being a place of either mansions or a mansion that God has prepared for those who love him. Matthew 22 tells us that in heaven there'll be no marriage. Right? That will be a thing of the past. Revelation 21 and 22, it's described as living in a perfect city. But here's the question, what happens in that city? Now, will it be like, you know, uh, an eternal church meeting? Like this, except forever. And, of course, the question you'll all be asking at that point is, and will I get to choose the music, you know, uh, and explain to Michael how it should be played? You know, like, what will it be like? How, how will it work? Just before we dive into that a bit more, I want to take us on sort of a, an excursus and just ask a question uh, that I think gets raised as we read our Bibles. And the question is this, will we go to heaven, or will there be a new heaven and a new earth that come to us? The reason I raise that is because often I think Christians use that shorthand phrase for someone who's died, they've gone to heaven. 
and in, in some ways it's, it's a, trying to describe a bit like the idea of if we caught a flight to Sydney, you know, we're going to a place or to a location. But the New Testament, I think, focuses much more on the experience we have when we arrive. And the Bible tends to speak about, not just about heaven, but it talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And the fact that heaven will actually come down to earth. I want to take you to Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3, and just look at that together as we see the sort of parameters of, of what God is promising. It's a vision of what's to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. It's the same idea, I think, that comes up in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's a picture of God completely fulfilling his promises to rule over and redeem his people and, in fact, all of creation. It's the culmination of everything that God has been working towards for eternity. It's captured by that. So as I ask you to think about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new heaven and the new earth, do you think from those descriptions that this earth is going to be destroyed and replaced, or do you think it's going to be renovated? What do you reckon? You are, you are sort of destruction, rebuild, or renovator type person when it comes to the future let me take you back to um, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 I'm not sure these verses are on the screen but let me read them to you uh, because it, it talks about the, both what will happen when Jesus returns and compares it with the days of Noah listen to what it says 2 Peter 3 verse 10 the heavens will disappear the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare Seems, sounds quite catastrophic, doesn't it, in terms of what's going to happen. If we come back just a few verses to verses 6 and 7 of 2 Peter 3, have a listen to the way in which there's comment made about the flood in Noah's time. By these waters, that is the flood of Noah's time, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. He would have said that in Noah's time, the earth was destroyed by the flood. Now, this is the same world we continue to live in. So, the destruction in terms of cleansing, purification, sorting out of rebellion against God, that's clearly the picture. But actually, the, the present earth exists. So, Will this earth be destroyed and replaced or renovated? Actually, I don't think the Bible's very clear, but what it is clear about at this point is that there will be a total restoration of all things under the authority and in the presence of our great God. It's a bit like last week when we talked about the resurrection bodies. 
being like a seed that is transformed into a plant. Connection, but vastly different. So if you think about the renovation of this world, it won't be this world on steroids. You know, everything you love about this world multiplied by 10. I think that would just be idolatry, actually, to just cling to the things that you love rather than see actually the purpose of heaven in due course. I love what uh, C.S. Lewis says about this in mere Christianity as he tries to picture this future that God promises. He says this, Earthly joys are the scent of a flower that we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have not visited. Uh, the hints of the future in what we see and experience now. Why will the new heaven and the new earth be so good? Well, I want to turn now to 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 that I think explore really the wonderful nature of heaven. So I have that open in front of you as we, we dig into it. 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. I think these chapters portray uh, heaven or the new heaven and the new earth as like going home, right? Going home. Not a house, but a home. So we receive an eternal weight of glory. That's picked up in verses 16 and 17. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. What is glory? Uh, I want you to imagine that you were in the Sydney Olympic Stadium on the 15th of September 2000. That's when the, uh, the women's 400-metre race was run and everyone was predicting that Cathy uh, Freeman would win that race and that's exactly what happened. As you saw Cathy Freeman running in not a very stylish suit, I don't think, but uh, as you saw her running this 400-metre race and as you saw her at this point in the race striding over the finish line, you would have seen her in all her glory. Right, the, the peak of her athletic abilities and triumph on the Olympic stage. But can I say, if you were one of the 112,000 spectators roaring, standing and cheering as she came around that last bend and started extending her lead into the main straight, there's a real sense in which you would have shared in her glory at that moment. You almost participate in that occasion God is glorious and to see God's glory is to get a window into his very character of grace and mercy and the high point of that for us is when we view the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross giving his life for rebels like you and me for no reason except for his kindness and grace and generosity. Friends, that is the glorious character of the God that we serve. The one who, even though we deserve judgment, turns away his wrath by the sacrifice of his own beloved son. Glory of God. But the interesting thing is, we're told here that we 
We receive glory from God. Not just that we witness it, but we receive it. Verse 17. God is achieving for us an eternal glory. So what are we talking about here? How is God achieving for us an eternal glory? Well, if I took you back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, I think it's explained so very helpfully. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. You see, at the end of the age, we won't just be with God in the presence of glory, but we will actually be glorious like God. Isn't that interesting? Fully formed into the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as God has always intended for those who love him. And we're told that God is doing that work in us right now. Uh, Back to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Look at what it says there. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The troubles we face. um, Ageing, depression, sickness, loneliness, grief, heartache mental illness, fear. Uh, they don't seem light and momentary, really, do they? They can be quite profound, and a heartache can, can accompany them. But, of course, the point being made is that, that it's a matter of perspective. The glory that awaits, it, it far outweighs the struggles that we have in this present age. Not only that, the troubles and the setbacks and the heartaches, they actually help us focus on the promised future. They ensure that we we don't get attached to this world, but anticipate what God has for us. You see, right now, our bodies do decline. Right now, we experience impaired relationships Right now we know the way in which our sin interferes so much uh, with the way we connect with other people. It's so destructive. But friends, there's a day of glory coming when those struggles will be a thing of the past. Revelation 21.4 says this, On that day he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or crying or pain. For the old order of things will have passed away. Dwelling with God is all about being in his glory and being made glorious. But it is like coming, coming home. Sue and I have lived in the, um, the same house now for almost 30 years. Now, I don't own it, the church owns it, so at some point I'll be moving out. That's the way it goes. But even if I owned it, at some stage I'd be moving out, either to other accommodation or being carried out in a box. Like one way or another, this this dwelling is not permanent. It's just a house, not a home. So what makes something a home? 
Well, it's not so much the address. See, home for me is where Sue is. See, home for me is where my kids grew up. Home for me is where the grandchildren visit. Home for me is where friends uh, meet together, where neighbours connect with each other. The future with God is like going home. It's a wonderful picture. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And at this point, it's picking up on the body. The body's like a tent over time, you know, weather, sun, it develops sort of tears, the water gets in, you know, there's a decline uh, that occurs. That's just the reality. But the resurrection body will be suitable for that eternal relationship with God in the presence of God, strong, enduring, incorruptible. You see, our resurrection body will be good for the new home that we're going to be in, the one in the presence of God. Chapter 5, verse 8 of 2 Corinthians. We're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You see, believers, we have a relationship with God now that is absolutely true. It's just not completed yet. It's a relationship that is building towards its conclusion. We're not home yet. It's a bit like uh, soldiers who are in the armed forces serving overseas. So even though they're overseas and away from family, they're still married to their spouse... Their children are still their children. They still have communication, you know, letters or, uh, you know, getting on Zoom calls or whatever it might be. But it's not the same as being together. And you see that, don't you? When you see those um, on the news, the pictures of uh, returning soldiers flying into an airport and those... uh, Scenes where they embrace their spouse and catch up with their children, the sort of joy and overwhelming emotion that's attached to all that. Friends, right now, as followers of Jesus, we live by faith, not by sight. But then, Revelation 22, verse 4, we will see his face. And his name will be on our foreheads. Face to face uh, with the one who loves us and knows us. The ultimate blessing of being in the presence of the Lord himself and to know him fully. And of course, when when you have that picture of going home, you live consistently with that home. Christians don't have a death wish. We're not morbid. Uh, not by a long shot, but when you go to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9, we do make it our goal to please him, whether at home the body or away from it. Do you understand that there's a consistency of life because of the relationship you have with God now and your anticipation of where that is heading? Not earning you know, gold stars like Stephen said with God, that's not, not what we're doing, 
but rather we have a relationship with God now that will reach its wonderful finale when Jesus returns. And what we do is we live with that eternal truth at the centre of our existence now. It shapes us in such a profound way. I find this statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, so quirky. Look at it again with me. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So tell me, how do you fix your eyes on what you can't see? Isn't it a, such an interesting picture? I think if you're like me, then your life tends to be preoccupied with what you can see. It just occupies your windscreen. Degrees and jobs and exams, uh, interest rates, housing affordability, holiday, what you see in the mirror first thing in the morning, toys, our achievements. And can I say, many of those things you see, they're good. They're good gifts from God. They're not bad. But here's the thing about them. They are temporary. They are short-term. But God tells us to be preoccupied with the unseen, eternal realities. That's what's to occupy us. What is promised now will be given to us then. We know God now, but dwelling with God and experience his goodness and glory and to be freed from our sinful human limitations then will be wonderful. Will heaven be uh, boring? Well, you'd only ever think that if you didn't really know God and know the wonderful nature of his character and his kindness and generosity and goodness and love. Being in his presence... They could never be boring. And to be made more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, there's nothing boring about that. This is the ultimate excitement. This is our destiny. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, being with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth, oh, let me tell you, that will be better by far. Better by far. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you um, for the wonderful promises you've made to us in your Son. And we ask that you'll help us to fix our eyes on those wonderful promises. We know we can't see them fully yet, but we know they're totally guaranteed. And we do ask that they'll just occupy our minds and our hearts as we live in your world 
of that future unfolding before us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.